18 months into the COVID-19, as things have settled down, we take a look at where things are in the region's financial services industry. In today's podcast for Future CIO, we speak to Junta Nakai, Global Industry Leader of Financial Services and Sustainability at Databricks, on where things are in the financial services industry. Junta, welcome to Podcast for Future CIO. Thank you very much for having me today. What is the difference, if any, between what digital transformation in the financial services industry is like before and during the pandemic? The main difference in kind of digital transformation before and after is that crisis brings the future faster. If we learn anything from the pandemic and COVID-19, it's that all the trends that were going to happen anyway get significantly accelerated in times of great change. And what we found in financial services is that the use of data and data analytics have taken an outsized importance during the pandemic compared to before. So if you think about, let's say, a traditional way that a bank did customer acquisition, personalization, fraud detection, risk management, and a lot of those models that are running today rely on historical data sets. What happened in the past? And if you look at what happened, for example, in the United States, you know, after March 18th, which was one of the first days of the lockdown in the United States, arguably a lot of those models that these banks have built over decades just went out the window. So it really forced institutions, insurance companies, asset managers, insurance companies to really start thinking about agility, resilience, innovation in ways that they hadn't been thinking about before. And it greatly accelerated the need to become much more, I would say, data-driven rather than data-supported. I'll give you a practical example of this. Let's say you're an asset manager, right, that relied on earnings and Excel files and, and all the things that a typical asset manager does in order to make decisions on whether to buy or sell a stock. And you make basically a linear forecast based on you know three megabyte Excel files to try to figure out what's going to happen. In March, in February of last year, all of that went out the window. All the linear forecasts that you made about earnings for this year and the next year and the following year to value your stocks, you have to now rethink, how is it that I'm going to start valuing these companies? How am I going to start assessing the risk to my portfolio? How am I going to start to know when maybe the COVID shutdown or maybe industrial production starts coming back in a particular country or particular factory? All of that requires a completely new way of thinking about data and a, a wide array of data to be used in order to make those decisions. So I'll give you a practical example of this. Let's say you're an asset manager invested in Apple. Okay. And then in early last year, Apple shuts down all the factories in China. And if you're an asset manager in New York and you're trying to figure out, well, how quickly is iPhone production going to come back for Apple? Because that's, I'm going to use that as a basis to make investment decisions. So you could do one of two things. You could, you know, maybe talk to the sell side and, and ask for, you know, insights from Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or Nomura or, you know, any of the other banks that have that, that, that's out there. Or you could wait for the quarterly earnings release to hear from Apple, how was production uh, in the last quarter. But if you're an enterprising asset manager that has a very sophisticated view of data, instead of doing that, you might start to look at satellite data, see how many people are walking into a Foxconn factory in China today versus three months ago. You might buy air pollution data. You might look at how much air pollution there is relative to the past in specific factories in China where iPhones are being made. Now, using these data sets as a proxy for what's actually, you will have a much more real-time understanding of what's happening on the ground than looking at maybe historical data sets, structured data sets, traditional sources of data sets. So that's just a practical example of how data has taken an outsized importance during COVID for institutions, insurance companies, asset managers to basically make better decisions. 
there is a greater use of big words like uh, hyper-personalized experiences, uh, banking as a service, and more recently, wealth as a service. What do these trends really mean from the perspective of three groups of people? A is the customer, B, the regulator, and third is the uh, financial services institution. Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually think I could answer all three of those in three words, which is if you think about what the future of money is going to look like, I would argue it's going to be three things. It's going to be instant, it's going to be inclusive, and it's going to be invisible. Instant simply means as you're for a consumer, for example, it means that you are now expecting the same level of instant gratification from your financial service institution that you get from other parts of the economy, like retail or media. Inclusive simply means that, for example, in the United States, and this is particularly the case in ASEAN and emerging Asia, is that there are hundreds of millions of people in Asia that are either unbanked or underbanked. Even in the developed market like the United States, there are tens of millions of people that don't have access to banking services. So inclusive is something that's going to become increasingly important from a regulator's perspective to try to widen the net of who can actually get services from financial service institutions. Invisible means that if you're a financial service institution themselves, you run the risk of becoming almost utilities with low brand awareness awareness, low pricing power, low mindshare, because oftentimes what's happening in, in the paradigm of, let's say, open banking in the UK and in Europe and now coming to Australia and all other markets is that oftentimes it's the financial application that owns the eyeballs and the mindshare. And that's the kind of the interface and the window into the organization. And banks are just pricing, uh, competing, let's say, on price, right? Or particular services, particular products. So if you think about instant, inclusive, invisible, what underpins all three of them and what fuels all three of them is actually data. Because if you want to be provide more instant services, for example, you need a far more understanding of your customer, you need machine learning, you need all these advanced things to be able to make sure that you're covering, you know, providing service to customers at the right level, but also preventing fraud and managing the risk, etc, etc. Inclusive means kind of like the alternative data example I gave about Apple, you know, production in, in China, the more data holistic range of data that you use, the more the better you can make assessments about what kind of products and services you're comfortable giving to a customer, right? So for example, in the United States, if you look at things like FICO scores, which is kind of the, the standard in which the credit bureaus and, and report and you, you did make decisions on whether or not to give loans to somebody, up until recently, it didn't include things like how timely you pay your rent. Or, so th there's other data points that are out there that you could now bring in to make better decisions on whether or not to lend someone money or not. Invisible means if you're an incumbent institution, you better figure out what the future of financial service is going to look like because it's almost kind of an existential threat to your business model, right? So if you think about all these big buzzwords, all of that comes down to how effectively can you use the data that you have to make sure that you build an organization that's future-proof. So to me, you know, all of these great words, all these concepts, all these ideas come down to the foundational component of how much data do we actually have to make this a reality and not just an aspiration. I spoke to a digital-only bank, and I was told that as a business, they outsource most of their operations and technology needs. The result mm -hmm. is a very small team serving a very large customer base globally. Mm -hmm. Is this concept of an entirely outsourced model of banking operations sustainable? And there are a few other things that add on to that. And how will it stack up against the incumbents that is able to direct its resources to a narrow focus? 
That's a very interesting question. I think, you know, first and foremost, it depends on the regulatory environment of the country that you operate in. In more emerging markets, it's possible to create a banking-like service without the onerous regulatory frameworks that many developed countries operate in. This is precisely the reason why there are financial super apps in ASEAN and China and other markets, but it doesn't exist in, let's say, Japan, or it doesn't exist in um, the United States, um, for an example. But from a business model perspective, I don't see see why that couldn't succeed. Because if you actually think about it, what is the most important metric that a CEO of a bank cares about? I would argue that metric is return on equity, ROE. And then if you think about the components of ROE, right, and how ROE is calculated, and, and just the kind of level set, ROE is super important to CEOs of companies, because that drives the share price of most financial service institutions, right? The higher the ROE, the higher the price to book, the higher your share price is going to be. That's basically how you know, a very simplified way of how the stock market works in financial services. If you you break down ROE into three components, it really comes down to three things. One is leverage, how much money that you know you're going to have. It comes down to net margins, how profitable you are. And the last thing is it comes down to, you know, basically productivity, sales of assets. So if you're a financial service institution that's trying to build for the future, the leverage lever is probably not going to be able to be pulled, right? The days of being levered 50 to 1, 40 to 1, like before the financial crisis, probably going to be very difficult for a bank or institution to do. So the only two other levers that you have are kind of metrics of profitability and productivity, to also, uh, like asset turnover, basically. So the less assets you have, if you have the ability of the tools, you have the technology to enable kind of like what these neobanks are doing, you could now start to generate sales above and beyond what traditional incumbent can do with, given their assets. The second thing is the cost structure is going to be much leaner. So you're going to have higher net margins. So if you kind of think about it from that perspective, I think it's extremely feasible to operate a, an institution that looks like this. If you look at, for example, the United States, the largest financial service institutions today are not really banks. They're not really insurance companies anymore. They are digitally native asset-like financial service businesses. A good example might just be PayPal. PayPal has a market cap of about $300 billion. That's far bigger than Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley combined, probably, right? Maybe it's slightly bigger than Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs combined. If you look at Square, for example, the payments app in the US Square, Square has a market cap that's greater than HSBC's market cap. And imagine these companies have tens of thousands less people, if not hundreds of thousands less people people than the incumbent institution has. So if you think about these digitally native, digital only cloud-based asset-like businesses, they have shown to be successful all over the world in specific segments where the regulation allows. And I see no difference for that for you know Asia uh, or any other, anywhere else, actually. And I think that's a proven model. And that's one of the reasons why kind of I mentioned before the threats that incumbents face, because when these businesses come into play, one of the first areas they go after, obviously, is the most profitable areas of the bank, the less regulated, most profitable areas. So those are the areas where people are competing head on. That's a really difficult position to be in as an incumbent. And you're forced to kind of innovate and start thinking about things in in a different way. What about on the issue of an incumbent having a lot more resources and, and you know, especially incumbents carry the word legacy, experience, yeah. expertise in that compared to, you know, your startups uh, or the very tech native organizations that you mentioned, like the PayPal's of the world. Yeah. Is there an advantage at all these days to having this uh, legacy of expertise, experience, very narrow focus, that sort of thing? So I think incumbents do have a tremendous advantage 
in the sense of having been there and done it and having the benefit of historical data. But the practical reality of it is that most institutions, not just financial services, but just companies in general, probably use a very, very, very small fraction of the data at the, their disposal because you know this is where legacy hinders your ability to innovate. I'll give you an example of this. So if you look at the top 100 research and development spenders on earth, so if you look at the top 100 companies that spend on R&D on earth, not a single financial service institution makes that list. As a sector, financial services ranks about 11th in total R&D spent okay, as a sector. So in spite of being the second largest sector by market cap in Asia x Japan, despite being maybe 16% of global market cap, right? So this first or second largest sector on earth, financial services ranks 11th in R&D spend. And if you kind of think about why is that? It's because yes, banks spend lots of money on technology, but most of that money is going to what I would say, keeping the lights on, maintaining that complexity, maintaining that cost. That just means you have less money to spend on more products, innovative new services, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's one of the reasons why if you actually think about it, at least in developed markets, the way most people, let's say, borrow money from a bank for a mortgage, or the way most people get life insurance has arguably not changed in decades. So that ability, inability to access the entirety of the data that you have, the inability to have the tools and the modern architect, modern technology to benefit from that actually hinders the ability to innovate and to kind of take advantage of that competitive advantage that they have. So that's a, a practical example, I think, where yes, theoretically, it should matter greatly. But if you look at it today, most institutions haven't really used that to their full advantage around the world today. And I guess they've been very complacent on that, that aspect. Yeah, it's not, you know, it's complacency, but it's, you know, there's regulatory uncertainty. It's it's difficult, right? If you're, It's a very different thing if you're a 10-year-old company or if you're HSBC and you've been around for 150, you know, 170 years. The number of countries you operate in, number of technologies, number of databases, different languages, different tools, you know, different systems. It's It gets really complicated very, very quickly. And, and I commend a lot of big organizations of, of starting to, to figure that out, but it's tough. And that's precisely... Precisely one of the things that our company, Databricks, focuses on is just making it easier for companies to put all their data together and now take advantage of that data. Talent remains a, a scarce resource. And more so now with COVID, employees are looking for stability. Now, how can digital native organizations that outsource pretty much every part of the business model that's possible compete for talent when they cannot possibly offer the same stability that an incumbent organization could provide? That's a fantastic question, actually. So before coming to Databricks, you know, I spent most of my life on Wall Street. I used to work at Goldman Sachs for many years. The, at least from what I've seen, the notion of stability for a large organization is probably untrue, <laughs> especially today, given the changes and rapid changes that are happening. If you look at it from a high level, and if you think about what are the competitive advantages of a financial service institution, period, I would argue in the past, it came down to two things, which was capital and scale. How much money do you have? How many branches? Do you have, roughly speaking. If you think about what is the main source of competitive advantage for financial services today, I would argue it's two things. It's data and people, right? Kind of like what we talked about for the incumbents, right? What are the data sets that you could use to drive innovative new products, move away from, let's say, product centricity towards customer centricity? And how can I empower the people to do stuff with that valuable asset that I have, data? So if you think about it from a digital native perspective, I actually think it's the banks that are struggling to attract the talent. Because I'll give you a practical example of this. If you are a 
talented data scientist or data engineer or technologist. And you have the option of going to a incumbent bank that uses a legacy technology in a proprietary language that only that bank uses versus going to a digitally native company that le you leverages cloud tools that, you know, the best of breed tools that are out there today that heavily leverages open source software and open source technology. The career optionality that you have in the latter situation is far greater than working for an incumbent one, right? Because now you're working with the latest tools, you benefit from the latest innovations, there's a rich ecosystem of talent and demand, there's hundreds of companies, thousands of companies that use these open source products. You have far more optionality to enhance in your career than focusing on a new niche technology that only one financial service institution might use. So I actually think that the embracing of openness, open software, cloud, all the things that are big buzzwords today, it actually helps recruit far more for digital native companies that, that use this versus incumbents today. And I actually think that one of the biggest things that I hear from our financial service customers or big ones is just how difficult it is to recruit and most importantly, to retain talent. So recruiting is one thing. The second part of the equation is retaining them. And if you kind of think about it, you know, this is a theoretical example. Let's say you're a talented data scientist and you go work for, for Netflix and you sit down and Netflix says, hey, here's all the data we have on our 200 million customers, billions of data points about what people are watching, how they're watching it, how long it, you know, whatever, whatever. That's like the, it's like a playground, right? It's euphoria. It's a theme park for you. Let's say that talented data scientist gets convinced to go work for a bank and, you know, he or she says, Hey, I want to look at this data to do something interesting, right? It's going to take that person three months before he or she has access to any of that data, not only from a technology perspective, but from a governance compliance PII data. So those are actually practical considerations that I think banks have to really think about of not only do, how do we recruit? these people. More importantly, how do we actually hold on to them? Because the market for these kind of talent is, is very hot right now all over the world. Talent is scarce, but the modern economy changes so quickly. The odds of you doing one thing forever is de minimis. You know, the odds of you, your first job being the last job that you have is at this point close to zero. So if you're thinking about what it takes for a talented young technologist to survive and to thrive, they're looking for things oftentimes that are not just about compensation or perks um, or title. I feel like many of them are looking for both purpose and also personal growth. And I think purpose and personal growth are things that smaller companies with slogans like do no evil or you know whatever, you know, they provide that kind of atmosphere to them in a less rigid way than a, an incumbent institution has. And to the credit of many incumbents, they're starting to change, right? Like you see, all the things that happened at Goldman Sachs, for example, when a few younger financial analysts kind of raised issues about quality of life concerns and the way that the company reacted, I think is phenomenal. They said, okay, you're right. Let's figure out how we could automate menial tasks and make the lives of our young talent better. And I think that's a huge advantage for someone like uh, Goldman Sachs who, who actually addressed this head on. So like, yes, talent is scarce, but increasingly institutions are you know figuring out that, hey, we can't compete with Silicon Valley just on perks or compensation or any of these things. We actually have to think about what kind of working environment it makes it so attractive to work at, at an agile, fast-moving institution. And how can we bring those kind of things um, to our organization? And if you actually look at job postings, right, this is one of the things I do all the time, is I actually look at job postings by all of these big banks and I compare it over time. I just did this earlier. Today. If you go on jpmorgan.com and if you type in the word trader right, in your job search, and if you type in the word AI, in the job search. Today, you will find more jobs that have AI in the job description than trader in the job description. That's an order of magnitude shift from five, even five years ago. 
right? You know, let alone 10 years ago. So I think the large organizations are starting to realize that and making changes from top down. If you look for senior roles in technology at these banks today, they almost exclusively look for people from Silicon Valley. Like we want to hire people who worked at a, you know, innovative, fast moving Silicon Valley company. And by the way, this job is going to be based out of San Francisco, you know, or something like that, right? So the type of talent that they're trying to attract is also shifting. So it's a really interesting time to be kind of witnessing this and kind of being having a front row seat to how banks are shifting about thinking about tech talent and in thinking that not as a cost center, right? Because I would argue most banks used to think about technology as a cost center. And today they're thinking about it as the source of competitive advantage going forward. And I think that's the right way to think about it. We started to talk about tech companies and non-financial services entering the market and places like uh, payments, you say, the low-hanging fruit, but high, high profitability and loans as well. How can financial services compete and thrive in such a marketplace? How can they compete if they when kind of, you know, digitally native companies are coming after business? The quick answer is to innovate. And it's much easier said than done. But one of the things I look at, by the way, is NPS scores. So net promoter scores, right? So basically, you know, it's just a way of saying you know, how happy are your customers dealing with the products and services that you provide, NPS scores. And if you look at NPS scores globally, you would imagine that financial services ranks really low in NPS scores, right? Customers are not really happy. I read this study. I don't know how true it is, but I read that in the US, millennials would rather go to their dentist than go to the bank. So, so NPS scores are low. But if you actually look at a sub-segment breakdown for NPS scores, not everything is low. Actually, if you look at sub-segments like brokerage and investments, NPS scores are pretty high, actually, relative to other sectors. And if you actually think about brokerage and investments, I would argue that's the area of financial services where we've seen the most amount of innovation in the last decade. So think about robo-advising, ETF investing, ESG investing, all these different things, no cost um, stock trading, like Robinhood and all these things, you know, crypto trading, all these things that have proliferated over the last decade. There has actually been quite a bit of innovation in the brokerage and investment space. And I think that's one of the reasons why the NPS scores are high. So what that experience tells us is that it's not a lost cause. You know, as institutions kind of leverage the most important asset that they have, which is data, and empower their other most important asset, people, to do stuff with that data, come up with new products, again, move from kind of product centricity towards customer centricity. We talked about the idea of like mass personalization, all these things have become much more instant, much more inclusive, like all sorts of different stuff. It shows that that actually pays dividends in how customers perceive products and services. So I actually think that the paradigms that are changing, legal paradigms, such as open banking, right, which is basically forcing data to now be shared across institutions and no longer a bilateral relationship between just me and a bank. Now that data is portable. And while I'm sure that causes, you know, some, some angst and, and anxiety at some of the incumbents, actually, this is the, this is the chance because when there are great paradigm shifts like this, there is going to be a huge dichotomy and distinction between first movers who take advantage of that and then those who don't, right? So there's going to be massive value creation for the incumbents who figure this out. And I think a very kind of real example of this is think about software, right? Think about the difference between the software sector today and maybe the software sector 10 or 15 years ago, right? So if you look at the software index in the US, the S&P software index, right, is like maybe quintupled in the last decade, whereas the financial services, I think might have been down or basically flat in, in the 2010s, right? And if you think about what happened in software, if you look about, there was a huge paradigm shift towards open software, open source. There was a whole fundamental rethink of, hey, maybe everything that we do shouldn't be proprietary. Maybe we should embrace open source software, open code, this open collaboration ecosystem, like their mentality completely 
completely shifted. And as a result, there are companies that disappeared, right? Completely. Maybe the household names a decade ago in software, you don't even hear about them anymore. There are new companies that are born throughout that disruption, Databricks being one of them. There are also incumbents who adjusted their business model and thrived. I think Microsoft is a great example of that. They went from, you know, the world's largest company two decades ago to now being world's largest or number two company in the world. Again, no company in history has ever done that. And that, you know, embrace of this kind of mentality means there's going to be tremendous opportunities and risks for incumbents and new entrants alike. I think these are kind of the, the sense of urgency that's instilled in organizations to start fundamentally rethinking what it means to be an institution today in financial services and beyond. When technology has such a strong influence in how financial services is delivered, will this dehumanize the banking experience? That's an interesting question. So I think there's two ways to think about this. As a worker in financial services and as a customer of financial services. So I think the irony of AI or big data, all these buzzwords, is that as the use of AI proliferates, the characteristics that make us human become more important, not less. Here's an example of this. Look, look at, you know, as I mentioned, the trader thing at JP Morgan, right? There's probably less trader. They're looking for less traders. But that means if you're a, a modern trader that no longer just relies on taking customers out to fancy dinners and whining and dining them. If you're now a modern trader that leverages the experience, the market knowledge, the domain knowledge that you've accumulated over decades, but now have this ability to leverage the data, the AI, the modern tools and bring those two together, you are a much superior trader than someone who was there maybe five years ago or decade ago. And what distinguishes those kind of people are things like client relationships, being able to build rapport, trust, you know, all these different things. Again, all these characteristics that are very human get only amplified in that situation because of technology and the way things are going. So I actually think that these characteristics actually become more important, um, not less. From a customer's perspective, when, when I deal with my institution, my incumbent institution, I don't really talk to anyone as is. If you think about it today, just statistically, it's like the most, if you're a retail banking operation, one of the biggest areas of headcount is things like call center people. You know, when you call a call center, most of the time your experience is not that wonderful to begin with, right? So if you think about personalization, chatbots, really, you know, self-service, being able to answer questions really well, all the things that take up millions of man hours probably at an organization. If that can be automated, you free up your personal banker, your insurance agent, you know, all these people on high touch services, building a rapport with Alan, like when's your birthday? What are your life events, right? Really building that human because all the, the 90% of the busy work that you used to have to do as a company, you can automate that and you can now start thinking about the high value services. And again, maybe it's just, you know, more the human elements of it. So I actually think that all of this means that these technologies actually make humans who adjust to the new reality of how to work, how financial services operate, how businesses operate, it actually makes them more important, um, not less. Junta, thank you for joining me on Podchats for Future CIO. Thank you very much. That was Junta Nakai, Global Industry Leader of Financial Services and Sustainability at Databricks on the topic of the financial services paradigm post-pandemic. You are listening in to Podchats for Future CIO. As always, if, if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on this channel, simply email us at editors at society.com. We'd also like to invite you to sign up for a free weekly newsletter so you won't miss an episode of Podcasts for Future CIO. In the meantime, stay safe, have a great day, and see you on the next episode of Podcasts for Future CIO. Bye for now. <music>